Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. This is the Organic Wine Podcast, and my guests are Stephen Hagen and Andrew Smith. And we're talking about Antiquum Farm in Oregon. Antiquum is Stephen's family farm where he practices grazing-based viticulture, or what he calls joy-based agriculture. And I believe he's doing for grape farming what Joel Salatin has done for regular farming. Antiquum is a vineyard ecosystem specifically designed to enable nearly year-round high-intensity managed grazing of kuni-kuni pigs, sheep, geese, chickens, and ducks in the vineyard, though not necessarily in that order. Stephen describes in detail the infrastructure practical considerations, animal breeds, resources, and much, much more that is necessary to make the system work and to make it possible to produce wine that is 100% true to place. This is a must-listen for anyone considering maintaining a year-round herd and incorporating them in the vineyard, or for anyone who just wants to hear an example of some incredible earth-first agriculture and how it impacts the wine that comes from it. This ecosystem requires zero outside inputs for fertility. This closed-loop, holistic farm continually increases the distinctiveness and richness of the soil microbiome, which has had dramatic effects on the grape's morphology, chemistry, and flavor. If you really believe in terroir, Stephen and Andrew have taken this concept to such an extreme that I think it redefines it. This is such a compelling perspective that I think it challenges a majority of the claims to terroir in the wine world. If you want to be inspired by what could be possible for the future of wine, or if you want to save 15 years of trial and error in grazing-based viticulture, prepare for a 20 terabit download. <laughs> and don't be surprised if you start hearing the name Antiquum, however you pronounce it, a lot more often. Enjoy! Steve and Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be it, here with you. It is a real pleasure. I, you know, haven't yet tasted your wines, but when I found out about you guys i just knew i i wanted to talk to you and had to talk to you and had to share what you guys are doing with everybody that i could and i you guys are in oregon and if i don't know who wants to take the lead here but maybe you could start with where you are and and sort of the layout of of your vineyard farm operation uh steven yeah okay <laughs> uh we are in the we're in the southern end of the willamette valley in oregon uh so the specifically the town is called junction city uh so we're about i'm gonna say 25 20 25 miles northwest of eugene a couple hours south of portland and which um, is not it's not the the what most people think of as oregon wine country which is a little further like north of salem up through to portland right yeah, exactly. Like, so we're we're or, uh, or further south down right. in the the sort of right you know wherever that is the I forget Roseland area. Right, and there's there's sometimes a, a misconception that we are when we say the Southern Willamette Valley that we are in Southern Oregon. So so that is a completely different growing region when you get down into the the Rogue and the Umpqua and the Applegate Valley. Um, this right. is and there's there's actually a newly formed uh, and approved AVA down on this end of the valley called the lower long tom and that is like brand spanking new maybe maybe a month old at the most um so you know there will be more information and and uh you know hopefully accolades as as that moves forward but we are at the the very southern end of the willamette valley which which uh which actually terminates in eugene uh 
And then if you were to climb a little more south and tuck back into the next valley, you're now technically into the, the like Crow and, and uh, Lorraine Valley. Um, so we're at the very southern end. And then uh, there's kind of a western shelf uh, on, on the west side of the valley. Um, and there's a, a kind of higher portion of the coastal range at that southern end uh, that spans between uh, the Alsi River to the north of us. So up by Corvallis and then mm-hmm. the Sayusaw River to the south of us, that higher portion of the coastal range uh, kind of creates a bit of a weather uh, sh- uh, sh- shadow. And um, yeah. there, you know, if you're not right in those river corridors, um, we miss uh, a significant amount of rain and temperatures uh, tend to in, in in large portions of that area, um, you know, we're a little more protected. So, so things, temperatures can run a little higher. There's a little less disease pressure, um, and things like that, a little less precipitation during the growing season. Got it. And what's the farm like? Uh, so the farm, as you, as you come West in the Valley, you kind of, you, you move into really nice, beautiful rolling Hills. And then, uh, there's some high elevation ridges that kind of run, east to west on that on that western uh, shelf to the valley. And so the farm is is mostly uh, northern slope and it's just mixed uh, forest. Um, so there's a lot of, of forestry stewardship that is part of the you know 150 year vision of, of this farm uh, and how to you know we're working with ways to incorporate uh, food production and foraging into into our work and lifestyle here. Um, and then there are two very uh, kind of small and, and narrow vineyard sites on the property. So one is, is lower in elevation, and that's where we have our Pinot Gris planted. It's a six-acre vineyard on about seven-and-a-half-acre site. Um, so we have a, a big garden site uh, down below that. We've got a little small orchard that is kind of just getting started, honestly. Um, mm. And then there's six acres of Pinot Gris on this kind of lower elevation, deeper soil, um, lots of sort of stream bed cobble rock buried into the into the soils there, um, and that's like mm. lower elevation and and yet cooler. Um, mm. And then you climb almost 150 feet in elevation to the next ridge to the south, and then just as you as you tuck over the top of that ridge you find this half mile long vineyard site that at its widest point is maybe 450 feet wide. Uh, so it's like this long sort of airport strip and it's a, it's a <laughs> polar opposite vineyard site. And that despite the fact that it's high, it's extremely, it's warm in the daytime, but then that high elevation, you get this huge diurnal shift. And so it's really cold at night. Um, mm. and the soils are really, really thin. So uh, topsoils mm. are um, in vast portions of the vineyard. You're running anywhere from maybe seven to fourteen inches before you're hitting sandstone, and our deepest portions Ooh. are maybe twenty-four inches deep, and then you hit sandstone. So oh, they're, wow. they're really cool soils. Yeah, that's amazing. <clears throat> and what what was the size of the upper the higher vineyard? Uh, the upper the upper vineyard. Uh, the current planting is fourteen and a half acres, and then we have about another oh. ten acres below that that we still have not planted. We are um, okay. I'm kind of I'm kind of waiting to see what my uh, how my 
children's lives shake out maybe through their mid-20s and see where they <laughs> settle and what they do. Um, <clears throat> the current reality is that with the way that I have chosen to farm, uh, <clears throat> there are just there are just limitations to how much we can take care of and how it how much yeah those 20 acres are probably work (laughs) yeah i mean it it, because it kind of tucked into the vineyard operations there's also you know poultry farming and waterfowl and and uh you know we're you know it'd be a little grandiose to say that we're sheep ranching but you know like we're we're doing a lot of other small-scale farming things that are all incorporated into the vineyard and and those things take their fair share of time as well so it's it's a lot more than just managing uh 20 acres of vineyard to to farm in this grazing based viticultural system that that we've created um so so there are there are limitations of what i can do uh and and i am kind of either waiting for that perfect uh farm employee that would free up the time to to allow us to to bite off more or really to see what my son and daughter decide that they that they want to do got it yeah well now so you said uh how much is forested of your area uh gosh the whole farm is 140 acres uh i'm gonna say there's probably 95 ish acres and that are forested more majority forested and yeah. and what is which way are the i mean what is the aspect of the two vineyard sites are they north facing as well they they are both directly south facing so if you picture directly that south facing. yeah okay. if you picture that in the in the uh pinot gris site the lowest elevation site which is also the north property line uh that you're coming down a south slope and then you hit just a little bit of bottom ground where we have a little local stream here called turnbow creek so there's a nice big farm pond that's about two acres there's some pasture surrounding that you go right up above that there's our home site um and you're climbing up north slope through the forest and then it and then it bends back to the south uh, and then you hit the other vineyard sites up at higher elevation as you as you climb got up to that that ridge. Okay, got it. Yeah, lovely. Well, that's a good overview layout. Now you mentioned quite a few animals, and <laughs> and uh, you guys practice what you call grazing based viticulture, right. um, which I love that term. Can you talk a little bit about that, and and then we'll dig into some of the details of that because I know. Yeah. There's some juicy details there. Yeah. I mean, it's for one, it's just, it's a really fun, just, you know, kind of joy based way of farming. I, I, (laughs) I, to be perfectly honest, and this is always great to say on, you know, something called the organic wine podcast, (laughs) but like I didn't, I did not get into this because I had some sort of, uh, you know, love affair with wine. You know, I think every, every wine grower and winemaker that I've ever met has this story about like this pivotal moment of like, oh, I had, I had, I was, you know, I was sitting on a beach and, you know, somewhere and I had this glass of wine and and I had this epiphany that this is what I had to do with my life. I don't, I don't have, I don't have that moment. Um, I came to this because, um, out of out of a desire to raise my family in a certain way and instill a certain set of of ethics and values and i really just have this great love for the craft and the art of farming i think that farming 
um, you know, at its worst can represent some of the, the, the worst impulses of humanity. It can be, you know, just you know, running roughshod over a piece of ground to, to make a dollar. Mm. You know, it can be about uh, greed and impatience and, and lack of vision. But, but on the other side, it can be about, you know, these beautiful human traits of, of, of empathy and kindness and stewardship and family, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, community I think it, and yeah, yeah, community, it, it, it represents the possibility to share some of our very best human impulses. Um, yeah. So that's what I wanted to get into. Um, yeah. And so when we first planted the vineyard, I, you know, of course for me, it began as like, well, obviously we're going to farm this organically. Um, but I was also being very new to wine at all. I, I kept hearing about this concept of terroir and, uh, and I was trying to wrap my head around it and what did it really mean? But I was coming at it from this, from this really newbie standpoint, um, and, and asking like some very innocent, ignorant, but also at the same time, I think they were really meaningful questions like, you know, <laughs> what is this, you know, what is this thing and, and tell me how to do it, <laughs> you know, like just give me the, give me the, like, give me the list of what I do to make that happen. That sounds awesome. I want that. And, and as I was talking to, you know, a lot of winemakers and a lot of growers, like the answers that I got just they just never made any sense to to me um they it, it it kind of felt like um like i was in the press corps asking politicians questions and that like you just get this like one layer answer and then sometimes a deflection um and it wasn't that i felt that people were being evasive by any means like i think that people are all you know that for the most part people are always trying their hardest and doing their best and, and have good intentions. Um, I just wasn't, it just felt to me like I wasn't sure that people had asked the right questions or, or deep enough questions. Um, yeah. So for me, like the, the light bulb that really went off was one day I was out um, spreading organic amendments, you know, in, in late winter, early spring before bud break. And the question just popped into my head, you know, I was kind of thinking about terroir and, 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 and I just thought like, well, where, where does this stuff come from that I'm, you know, yeah. all these certified amendments, like, where are they from? And I, re I realized I really didn't know. And as I started diving into that question, see, seeing that, that those things, those, those, uh, materials came from an incredibly limited, uh, incredibly limited set of source points and and then the light bulb also going off of like oh my god not only does this have nothing to do with this site or my farm or even the willamette valley or even the pacific northwest like it's also the same stuff that everybody else is using and is that not homogenizing my site with everyone else um it, and so I kind of began asking myself, uh, uh, you know, follow up questions of, you know, when we have these ideas of like a representation of a region in wine, how, how much of that is 
you know, not the soil, not the weather, but, but the, but the, the growing culture, you know, the activities of Mm. the farming activities and, and that people, and it's a good thing. There's a sense of community. People talk to each other, but there also becomes these things that like people, you know, one person says something and another person repeats it in it and it becomes a fact, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and there becomes a way that we just go about doing things. And I, I just kind of, decided in my youth and arrogance and ignorance i was like you know what i don't think anybody <laughs> i don't think anybody is doing this right and, <laughs> and or, or at least in, in a way that like makes sense to me that i can feel in my heart and i just and and that it feels like an honest pursuit to me i'm i'm gonna do something else um and and yeah now, does that tie into, because I, I know you dry farm as well. Is yes, that correct? correct? Yeah, yes. Does yeah. that, does the idea of terroir tie into that? Because I always am like, how do you, how can you talk about terroir in an irrigated vineyard? Like in an yeah. entirely irrigated vineyard? It's like, that's, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. in just a small way, but you know. It, yeah. 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 Sorry. We, we, we do dry farm. Um, we have a, we have a frost protection system in our Pinot Gris that, you know, in some years we turn on maybe three times in early spring. Um, most years we end up not using it, but the years where we use it, it saves the vintage. Um, but yeah. that, you know, I don't, that's actually yeah. at a, at a time of year where there's still a ton of rainfall and I don't really consider it irrigation. Um, yeah, but outside yeah. of that, yeah, we do, we do dry farm. Um, you know, it, um, and, and that again here, it's, it's more about, you know, a a real underpinning of grazing based viticulture is, and this is everything from, from dry farming to, uh, you know, our breeding selection for our sheep and our pigs and, and everything else on, on the farm is, is to, as a way of incorporating the idea of terroir into everything that we do um, is that things have to get by with the resources that we have available. So like if we're yeah. going out and drilling some really deep well and pulling water up out of the aquifer uh, in order to effectively grow vines, then maybe we shouldn't be growing vines or maybe we're right. selecting the wrong vines or we haven't put our vines through enough trial to, to allow them uh, the opportunity to show us that they can thrive. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. So, so it's, it's like, it's like taking a, you know, a breeding uh, program with our sheep. It would be like if in year one, two, three, and four, we did all kinds of things to baby those sheep to allow the, the sheep that maybe cannot thrive on this land to stay in the program. And, right. and so we end up with something that is more work and, and less economical and, and less sustainable as as a result so so you got to go through those tough times in order to to build the the vigor and resilience in in all of the life that's on this farm uh to truly tap the potential of of the concept okay i so there's i'm going to pause on this because i definitely want to come back and dig into the details of having these animals in the vineyard and things like that i also just wanted to comment i love 
this this idea that you brought up that asking where does this thing come from that I use every day or that I use regularly is is this revolutionary question honestly right. if you pursue it honestly back yeah. to you know the very source of where these things that we and and that's with food that's with water that's with you know the wine the the products that we use every day I think that's so profound um, also, we haven't heard from Andrew, and I want to—I just want to turn to Andrew since we were sort of talking origin stories. And Andrew, ask you—you know—I I know a little bit. I think you and I have some very interesting commonalities of having, uh, you know, had a religious upbringing, getting into philosophy, and then that leading us to wine. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can sort of talk about how you ended up where you are with these with working with steven yeah uh, through through that mechanism uh and and including you know uh life working in restaurants while trying to figure out am i doing a master's in theology or or psychology (laughs) or maybe it's time to go get a jd uh and and, and become a lawyer like what what do i do with these um right or in my case like working in restaurants because graduating with a degree in religion had no practical application in the world. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I feel that I feel that very, very deeply, very, very deeply, prayerfully. I feel it prayerfully. Um, yeah, but I, but I think that it, funny enough, in 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 my world, it it actually uh, has been the uh, like the the deeply profound religious upbringing and a connection to that. Um, that that I think led to the the profound encounter with wine. Uh, one one of my you know sort of f- favorite pieces about the world of wine, especially you know looking at a European context, is that on some level it would be very doubtful um, that we would have the world of wine as we know it today without the church. Um, yeah. You know, for instance, you know all of the all of the mapping um, of Burgundy would have been un, unattainable if it was left to a peasant class um, without the labor of monks uh, and without the, the financial support uh, of the of the church. Um, so when you have, mm. you know, when you, well, this is when you have free labor, <laughs> essentially, <Right. laughs> uh, in, de- in dedication to, um, to, you know, uh, an order or a sect, um, you can get a lot of work done. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the the tie of the Eucharist um, in you know from the the history of the Western world and and uh, of the you know the religious um, context of what that has looked like. Like the tie of the Eucharist to it, of course, promotes that downstream and still continues, um, still continues today. And I and I find those pieces really interesting, um, even to the point I remember the uh, going to the uh, uh, Episcopal Cathedral and when I was living in Seattle, Washington, and I was there for Christmas Eve, you know, midnight mass and um, watching. Uh, it was the first time that I had been to that kind of like high church sort of experience and watching the procession and um, the way that they were performing that, that ritual of the Eucharist. And I'm watching it and going, Holy crap! Like that is everything that I uh, that I have been trained to do um, in that current time as a sommelier. When I go to a table, mm. the way that right. we set things down, the way we present glasses, how we taste, you know that you know at least in in an older cultural place of having a testavon, that like that's also present in that high church experience of the Eucharist. And so you you just see those connections, and and that sort of intellectual piece of it has always always been um, fascinating. 
to me. And then combining that with having having grown up in agricultural families um, with history, both in the Midwest and in the southern United States, um, and knowing the value of hard work and that um, even in intellectual endeavors, there's some amazing uh, practical and creative outlays that can happen. And so digging digging deep into the earth um, while continuing to think about the why. Um, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a deep lover of Wendell Berry and mm. um, find, find his writing, whether it's in essays or poetry. Um, and then of course, in his, his practical farming in Kentucky, um, I, yeah. I, I find it deeply resonant. And so I think, you know, when you, when you encounter uh, people in this instance, like Stephen, um, who is living out those pieces, both intellectually and creatively and heartfelt and with morals and ethics um, and, a, and a drive to see the world better. Like it's, it's hard to say no to that. Uh, <laughs> we tried to start a cult this past year uh, during the pandemic. I was going to say, you were talking about free, how much you can do with free labor. You have these acres <laughs> that haven't been planted. Yeah. All you need is a cult there. Well, it was, I'll, I'll be honest. And I, and I, you know, we really want to give uh, uh, attribution where it's due. It was Steven's idea. Uh, uh, but, but there was, you know, I think that, that as we strive for like deeper, more connective experiences, we, we do want to bring other people into that. Um, so that even, you know, even in our local community where the two towns of Eugene and Corvallis are about 30 minutes from the farm in general, it's still a distance for people to come. And they often come, you know, for a pastoral vision or for a little bit of an escape and, you know, we want to be able to offer Antiquum Farm as something that they can take back home, not just as bottles, but as principles and values um, and find those places of themselves in our work and how they integrate that into their daily lives. Because um, if it's, you know, if it's just about wine, it's really, it's not going to do us all a whole lot of good mm -hmm. <laughs> in, yeah. in, in the end. Yeah. 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 Have, I, I would just throw this out as a, since we're on the topic of sort of, you know, spirituality, which I use that term with you know light quotes uh, and wine um have you read the rubaiyat of omar khayyam i have probably mispronounced it highly recommend it. i mean so rubaiyat are like the are quatrains it's like poetic quatrains so there's many rubaiyat out there but the famous compilation is known as rubaiyat of omar khayyam omar khayyam and he was like a Persian philosopher and whatnot, poet, obviously. And I think he was a scientist as well. And uh, it's it's all about mortality and wine as, and wine, I mean, it's wine-soaked metaphor throughout. And it's just, a it's beautiful at times. It's where the, if you've ever heard a, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine and thou, mm. that's from, that's from the Rubaiyat, from that collection well and there's now this so, definitely feels like um given what we're talking about i can't purchase this from amazon right now i need to go find it in a bookstore somewhere yes <laughs> i mean i i, I might have i mean i've <laughs> pretty much every used bookstore i go into i try to find some you know really i mean they're usually really beautiful copies because there's like persian script and there's mm. like i mean they're all each quatrain is if you get a really nice book is illustrated and it's got these old illustrations it's really most of these books, if you can find them out in the world, are these little gems that yeah. are just little. It's amazing. So yeah, it's a fun hunt to go on. I definitely recommend that as a quest. <laughs> Love it. Uh, <laughs> Odd, and, oddly enough, to interject, uh, on the cutting room floor for names of Antiquum Farm was "And Thou," 
So oh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, my my, uh, my father-in-law was was a big fan of the Rubiat, and and uh, that, that. Uh, it it didn't make it to the final uh, to the final <laughs> name uh, <laughs> list, but it it was on the list at one point in time when we were brainstorming names. <laughs> I'm, that I'm writing a... that down for a new wine label, Stephen. <laughs> All right, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, well, great. I you know there's. I thank you for sharing that, Andrew. And I, it is, I you, you don't get me geeking out on this stuff. Cause you know, like I said, I have a degree in it, so you've got to stop <laughs> me. But, um, I, I want to get back to the animals and, and the birds and mm-hmm. everything. So if I'm correct, there are sheep, a specific cross of sheep. There mm-hmm. are Cooney Cooney pigs. Correct. Um, if I'm pronouncing that right, there's you some are. like very fun ducks chickens uh quails mm-hmm. big meat quails it mm-hmm. sounds like now yeah. those i imagine are not running through the vineyard because they that is that disappear. is correct they are not they're, they're the quail are uh only here because i love to eat them <laughs> so, yeah yeah um yeah there's, yeah there's geese and you sell you sell the eggs if people want to raise their own quail or, yeah you know yeah, you start sell, their own sort of quail yeah. business with quail eggs or meat meat birds yeah. yeah so we offer fertilized quail eggs and uh fertilized duck eggs when they're in season um okay. yeah everything that we raise is also part of the kind of product offering uh array that we that we have as well but yeah there's geese um which i i am a goose advocate i think that they're the most sort of underrated uh, like sustainable protein choice that people can raise um and what now, else do we have going on? Yeah. I, I have a hard question for you. Okay. Ducks and geese. Well, ducks especially are mm-hmm. adorable. And I yeah. know that, I mean, from what I've heard, that they really bond with humans. They really, you know, especially, you know, if, if you know, they can sometimes even sort of imprint on specific humans if right. they want to. Yeah. How hard is it when it comes time to eating a duck? Or do you not uh-huh. do that yeah about that we we do not eat this the is, ducks. this is a very good question <laughs> this is, okay this is, you just really poked on a sore spot um yeah no this so, i've heard this so, from multiple homesteaders that it's like the yeah. ducks are just like they're just too cute like the eggs it's great you raise them for the eggs and for the you know, slug control and you know all right. the other wonderful things their poop but when it comes to eating them it's like nobody wants that job yeah so we um i mean I personally do not have an issue with it. I, I think okay. I have a very kind of, um, I don't know, I, it works for me, I, but it, I recognize that it's a very kind of abnormal uh, stance around, uh, you know, food production, you know, home, home-based food production. But I, you know, for me personally, it, like processing an animal that you've raised, um, it, it, it is almost like this kind of act of intimacy for, for me. Like it is, it is the final mm-hmm. thing that ties, yeah. that ties me to my home. And, and I know going in, uh, that that's why we're all here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. so, so like it, it's never like, it's not my favorite day. I don't, I don't right. savor the task, but it is, but it's right. part of the necessity of, of running this farm, uh, that, that I also find a lot of meaning and beauty in. That said, uh, we do not process ducks here. Uh, they are my daughter's ducks. Um, okay. And there's only, <laughs> so there's only about 20, I think right now there's about 27 ducks. Um, 
So, so they are not, the geese are by far like they are here in numbers that, that is truly impactful to, to the vineyard. Um, and anybody that has ever known a goose well would have no problem with processing a goose <laughs> because they are assholes. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, uh, I, I, you know, if you spend, if you spend an hour in the company of the goose, you, you are, uh, you're ready for processing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so one of the things that we've just over time, you know, as my kids were growing up, uh, it was always important to me to have them, working, uh, in some degree or another in, in this operation. And so part of that is, you know, I, I also don't want to, to be asking them to take part, but not give them some degree of control, you know? And so for my daughter, the birds were always kind of her thing. And so for, yeah. for years, uh, we did not, uh, process chickens. We only sold eggs. Um, mm. and we still do not process ducks. Um, but chickens just last year, so she is now 19, and last year she finally, because she eats chicken, she, like, her favorite food is, right, is duck. Right. Like, she loves duck breast. Yeah. That's her favorite thing. Uh, we're having it tomorrow <laughs> night, you know. Um, <laughs> but they aren't our ducks. Um, right. So, so it was just finally last year we raised our first batch. We raised, uh, I think, 150 uh, meat chickens. And, and that was the, you know, the first time where she'd finally said, okay, look, I'm going off to college. Like you, if you want to do this, it's fine. And, and, and then she yeah. actually took part and helped out and was very happy about it. So, oh, um, that's, that's, you know, so little, that's little very evolution. cool. Yeah. But yeah, know, no, I mean, in all seriousness, no, I, 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 the same thing. I mean, we, we have chickens here in our backyard and at, from time to time we've, we've had roosters that I've had to process. And mm -hmm. like you said, it's not, it's not enjoyable. I don't think mm -hmm. it should be enjoyable, no. but I do feel like I'm doing for them better than somebody else that didn't know them would exactly. do. And I, yeah. and I also feel a deep responsibility as somebody who eats meat of mm -hmm. many kinds of all kinds mm -hmm. to be able to do that, to look the animal in the eye and, and know that right. like, it's giving its life so that I can continue to live. Like, I think that's really important. And distancing yourself from that is actually the unhealthy way right. to approach. Exactly. Meat. And, and yeah, so I, I mean, I, I hear you. And I, I just wanted to ask, cause I, at some point, I know I love yeah. duck as well. And at yeah. some point would like to raise ducks and I'm wondering if I'm going to have a crisis at that yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, but okay. So let's talk about, mm -hmm. let, let's start a little outside the animals that you raise and, you know, let's talk about in the context that you're in at growing grapes, do you have, you, you must have to have deer fencing around yeah. your vineyards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Given, given our, our location, uh, we, we would never get a vineyard started here if it was not deer fenced. Uh, right. fact, so I, you have I, eight foot fences around everything. Correct. Yeah. In fact, okay. I, I, I remember hearing a story from my neighbors, uh, when they first planted their vineyard, I think in the late eighties. Uh, and they had a portion that was not uh, not fenced yet, and a herd of elk came in, and literally they just walked down the rows, and all of the newly planted vines, they just walked down rows and just pulled them all out, just thousands and thousands and thousands of vines. Oh, they just pulled them out of the ground. They weren't eating them. They were just. It was like they were just, you know, saying, "Nope, this is not going to be a vineyard." And it was, it, it was a major, major setback uh, because I think they oh, came in and did it like in the end of June. Um, so yeah, it's, oh, it is it is deer fenced, um, and then um, 
Yeah. And then do you have other predators uh, to worry about in mm-hmm. uh, in relation to the birds, especially like, yes. and the sheep? Yes, absolutely. We have, uh, I mean, when it comes to predators, we have all of them, <laughs> you know, yeah. our, our okay. main, our main, uh, the predator that uh, uh, has the highest impact on us here are our mountain lion. And we have, okay. we have the big cats are around here all the time. So we have mountain lion, black bear, coyote fox you know and then eagles hawks everything um yeah and this this system absolutely just did not work uh for the first few years that i was trying to implement it because we were just being predated out of the system um oh wow so we and and it was just kind of a a slow negotiation in my marriage (laughs) between my wife nikki and i uh to to get uh livestock guardian dogs so my my wife is a is a dog fanatic um kind of identifies herself as a dog in a way um and and um and she she just didn't like she was not comfortable with the idea of having a dog that doesn't come in the house, you know, that lives outside 24 seven with the livestock. Um, and we, we finally got to the point where we, we kind of talked through that and, and we visited a few working dogs. And, uh, the second that she, uh, gave me permission, like I was in my truck driving to Idaho to go pick up a pair of dogs. And, and that (laughs) moment was like, we, we flipped a a light switch. I mean, we, we have had, I mean, there was, the year before we brought our first pair of dogs in, we lost 38 sheep. Really, in only about a six-month period, we lost 38 sheep. Um, wow. And in the last, I think now it's been close to 14 years, um, we lost a goat last summer uh, on day two of having goats. And we've lost one ewe that was actually in a pasture for only a few days that didn't have a dog with it. Um, uh, so we've, we've had two losses in all the years since we've brought the dogs on board. So wow. it, it's an incredibly elegant and perfect solution. Um, you know, I, I like, I, and, okay. and, and it fits our philosophy. You know, we, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't farm to be at odds with nature, you know, like th- those yeah. predators belong here. They're important, uh, to, yeah. to the balance of the ecosystem. Like we need them here. And, and being at odds with them is a, is a huge bummer. So, you yeah. know, the, the dogs provide <laughs> this, the space for, for us to actually farm inside our own ethics. So this is two, do you just have two dogs oh, no. now? Oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are, uh, gosh. Oh my is God. it like two per herd? There, yeah, ten, yeah ten, exactly. Ten, ten dogs total. Yeah, ten dogs okay. total on the okay. property. Two two of them are uh, just uh, my useless family dogs, uh, and then <laughs> uh, and then there are eight. There are currently well, I'm going to say seven point two five working dogs on on the farm. Uh, <laughs> one lazy one. Uh, he's just old, so he's one of my original oh, okay. two, Mike. Uh, so Mike right now is just behind me at the tasting room guarding the the kind of ornamental chicken herd that's here for guests to kind of enjoy when they're here or chicken herd, the chicken flock. Um, so he's, he's only guarding about 15 chickens and, and that's about, and he's, he's coming up on, I think he's 14 ish somewhere around there, 14, 14 and a half years old. And, uh, and, and he looks it, 
So he's a he's a so for anybody who. <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody who wants to do this, I think, especially if you're in an area that is you know biodiverse and you're not surrounded by, you know, urban centers or things like that, you're you're going to need dogs. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And deer fence, and and then within the deer fence, you're are you so you're doing high intensity managed grazing, mm-hmm. I, I imagine, and. Yes. That means a lot of movements within smaller, you know, from smaller sections to smaller sections. Are you using a, like the portable electric fence to sort of section off blocks within the deer fence then? Uh, we did we did for years and now very small portions of it are portable. But what we found, uh, you know, I am I am still after, you know, I think we're coming up on our 16th year of developing this system. And it, and it is finally just in the last three or four years starting to get to something that doesn't always constantly feel like the wheels are about to come off. Um, Mm. You know, for years, for at least a decade, I always felt like I was riding this edge of, you know, like, gosh, this thing is just about to spin out of control or it would spin out of control, you know, because (laughs) there is no, you know, there's no model for this. Like we're just making this up as, as we go along. Um, So, so now what we've done just in the last couple of years is um, I, I used to kind of adjust the paddock size uh, for the amount of animals and the time of the year, because, you know, maybe we're moving every two or three days, maybe we're moving every 10 days. You know, it, it depends on, on the conditions and how things are growing temperature and rainfall and all of these things. That's, that's, that's the art and the nuance in this thing. Um, now what now what we do is we just change the rotation intervals to match the conditions and we have set paddock sizes um so so we've installed kind of semi-permanent sectioning fences into the trellis system uh at at set intervals in the vineyard and then all we have to do is set up and break down uh the uh portable fences at, on the, on the headlands and the, you know, the turnaround spaces at the ends of the row. And we actually even have those kind of installed onto the deer fence and they're just rolled up and they hang on the fence. And then when we want to, you know, close off a paddock size, we can just unroll those, snap them into place and they're good to go. So you're saying like a, like a vineyard row itself becomes a a fence row correct? in a way, like it becomes a border to a paddock. Right. Yeah. If you picture the, if you picture the trellis wires that are up higher in the canopy and then you just come down lower on those trellis posts and we've got uh, insulators and then we've run, uh, you know, uh, uh, multi-strand wire that's, that's just permanently installed on the lower part of the, of the trellis post. And then, so then you're just now, connecting, connecting in to close off the headwinds. Is it, but I imagine it's not continually electrified. No, correct. Yeah. So, so then, <laughs> right. So then we have be uh, fun during uh, harvest, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, uh, so we have a, a supply line that's buried that then daylights at the end of every row. So you come up at every row, there's a connection uh, and then you, and then we just connect the rows that we want to be energized. Uh, and then our it. charger, uh, we, you know, we've got a, a, big mother of a charger because it's a lot of mileage of wire even if you're just doing you know uh one acre of the vineyard that's going to be about four miles of wire and you know you always these chargers always say like oh this is an 80 mile charger and it's it's always nonsense like a mile of wire (laughs) is a a lot of wire 
uh, to have it be <laughs> adequately hot uh, to, okay. to, to run the system. So we have a, a really big charger that's on a, a base that has wheels. So everything here, the idea is everything moves. Animal housing, everything is portable, light. One person should be able to move it. Uh, so it's on wheels and then it's got a big solar panel on it. So we just move it and then we've got a, a grounding wire uh, and grounding rods at intervals all around in our deer fence. So then we can hook into a grounding line for the, for the unit wherever we are. Oh, got it. Yeah. And how long did it take you to figure this system <clears throat> out? Well, I mean, a lot of those improvements were just made last year. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> um, you know, I mean, right. and, realistic and, uh, for anyone. Yeah. Look at that. Well, you just saved somebody 14 years or more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> that is, and that is one of the things when people, you know, we, we get a fair amount of people that contact us and say like, Hey, you know, how do we do this? We want to, you know, can you do some consulting or, uh, or things like that? And, and, and sometimes people are like, well, you know, we'll figure it out. Or, and, and I go, you know, and, and you can, but, but there are a lot right. of holes to fall in, you know, and I, and I like to yeah. think that I'm getting to the point where I've fallen into most of them, uh, and, and then, and slowly dug <laughs> Don't myself need to out. Do it again. Yeah. But right. it, it's, uh, you know, and that's, that's one of the things if I was starting over again, I would have just made the, um, you know, I went the route of like, oh, you, you know, you use really short sheep and they can't reach the, the vines. Eh, you know, that <laughs> doesn't work. Um, you know, there's all, there's all these kinds of things that you kind of hear and you try and they, and they, and just through trial and error, you figure out like, okay, this, this is how it works. So it's relatively well, well, smooth now. Okay. Before we move on to, to some of those you know, specific animal details, any other infrastructure things? I mean, I imagine having water and moving water is, is mm -hmm. difficult, you know, yeah. do you, I mean, yeah, is that a tractor job? I mean, is that just something you need a tractor to be able to sort of schlep something around? Or have you, do you have a way to like pipe water around throughout? Uh, for for years, it was, uh, go to the site with, uh, with, buckets or five gallon jugs and, and make a few <laughs> okay. trips back and forth and replenish water. Um, so right. in the last couple of years, we have also plumbed in finally. And a lot of this was just sort of logistical, like how do we get water to that site, you know, and, and, right. you know, because it's, it's a long ways away from all the other infrastructure in, on the farm. And right. so we finally, in the last couple of years have, have plumbed in water put, and now we have outlets every hundred feet so that a 50 foot hose can do a hundred percent coverage so that you can also do things like, like move your water trough a little bit every day. So you don't get that like intensity of wear and tear in one place from everybody coming to the watering hole. Right. Um, right. So, so we have water plumbed in and then you have the trellis system itself that it allows you to graze a vineyard year round with sheep without the sheep killing the vines. Um, and, oh, well, that, yes. So that, that's what I was definitely interested in hearing about. Mm -hmm. So how, how does that work? I mean, I, I'm, yeah. Cause you're, you have the sheep in, mm -hmm. not through Verizon, I imagine. Uh, no, I mean, w we actually have pushed it quite a bit. Um, and I've always been scared. Uh, but then sometimes because I don't hit the schedule quite how I'd like to, we, we push and, and, and learn that like, oh, okay, well, it was, it was fine. Uh, I, I mean, our current way that we want to go about it is, is to have everybody out of the pool by the time we start, you know, accumulating sugar and seeing, seeing color. Um, yeah. but, uh, but we have gone over and it has been fine as long as the system is, is 
dialed in and working really well. So there's a, um, there's a trellis system, a series of electrical wires that, uh, again, is another one of the things that's kind of the nuance and the art of the thing, because there's this whole, you know, a lot of times people just say when they're thinking this, they, they go like, oh, we'll just raise the head height of the plant up to where the sheep can't reach it. Well, even with incredibly small sheep, that is, that's really, really high. And then you start thinking about the limitations of, of your, how high can your crew work, you know, to do right. hedging or move catch wires or do shoot positioning and things like that. And then you have to consider right. like the a needs. 10 foot trellis becomes kind of the, the reality where you're like, you start at six feet and then the shoots go up from that. And you're like, right. wait a minute. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you have we'd to all, consider. We'd all be on Italian, uh, old, old school Italian pergolas. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, so you have to consider the limitations that, that you, that the humans can work at and then how high, you know, sheep would really like up standing on their rear legs, how high can they reach? And then considering the needs of the vines and that, that you need a certain amount of canopy to, to be able to ripen your fruit and, and have healthy vines. So you start putting all that equation together. You start working with, you know, what's my breeding program with my sheep? What are the specific breeds we're choosing? And then inside of that breed, you know, how are we trying to, to direct our genetics over time to make them fit even better? Um, and, but then in the end, what we, what we've come up with is a trellising system that has essentially four wires and they're all, the system is adjustable. So you can slide the insulators and the posts that the insulators themselves sit on, uh, back and forth because the vines are not static. Um, and, right. and so it's not like you can just set this thing and forget it, you know, you, you. So yeah. if, if it needs to be said, this is an incredibly labor intensive way of growing wine. Like I, I am confident that we have the most expensive farming costs in, in the wine industry worldwide. Like I, I, I don't know that, but, uh, you know, if you take real estate costs out of the equation, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's true. Um, you know, so it, what, uh, what height are the great the grapes growing at then with with the system? Uh, uh, do you, uh, in relation to like the the head height or the top of the canopy? Uh, it's like from off the ground, like where where does yeah? Uh, do you, so, I mean, so our head height is is hanging right around about thirty one inches. Um, okay, so, so it, that's it's pretty pretty normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we originally I think I began with the vineyard um, at about. Uh, I think it was at more like 26, 25, 26 inches, somewhere in there. And then over time, as, as I walked, slow walked into the system, we did raise our head height a little, um, just, just to accommodate, uh, a, a reasonable shoulder height of, of, a, of a sheep. Um, and then you're, so they up, can, they can walk under it. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they walk oh, okay. under, underneath it. Um, so, and, and that's, you know, occasionally we get a, 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 a ewe lamb that we decide we're going to keep for breeding. And then she ends up growing a little taller than we like, and then they get culled out of the program. But we're generally trying to have the backs, uh, you know, the butts and the shoulders of our sheep hit about 29 inches for, for our system. So, huh. and same no. thing with our dogs. <laughs> How <laughs> that's awesome! Really, the dogs are that small? Yeah, so we, we raise they're, they're a, a small. The, the males, the males, 
Yeah, they're yeah. not. No, no. They're having, <laughs> okay. they're, they've Got had it. to learn a little more for sure. Yeah, yeah. And luckily, Got they're it. a little smarter than the sheep, so they they learn to navigate it pretty quickly. But like, we aren't running the the massive, you know, like Spanish Mastiff Guardian dogs. We're we're doing Italian Maremas, um, and and they are a smaller, uh, lighter breed of Guardian dog. But they but they okay. have they have had to learn their way around the system. So and do, so the. So are you saying, because I'm just trying to understand this, mm-hmm. there's an electric wire that runs just above that height of the sheep so that they sort of get trained mm-hmm. to go under it, but not to touch it and not to touch anything above it? Yeah. So if you picture our head height is right around, uh, you know, 30, 31 inches. So so just, you know, right there at like 30, 31, there's, there's, a, there's the lower set of wires. Uh, so sitting just like right at head height. And then we try to have that in as tight as we can to the head without shorting out on the plant. And then right. we're trying to come up and we come up then about another eight inches. And then we're trying to be out as wide as we can. Um, it, uh, you know, and so then it becomes a okay. matter of also factoring in your, your equipment width. Um, and, and, and then we're also, you know, Katahdin and Dorper sheep both have kind of larger ears you know, like that's a consideration when you're when you're selecting your sheep. You're looking for something that, um, you know, as as kind of sad and mean as this sounds initially. You know, you want you want bigger ears and things like that, so that they will, if they start trying to forge on those vines, that they'll encounter those wires and and <laughs> learn that that's not where the food is. So got it. Okay, yeah. got it. So so with, wow. So PETA, come with, at us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been one of those it, discussions. Right? Yeah, right. Um, uh, I mean, I, I hope everyone knows this is a reality of of you know living in the world and living with animals on a farm. Um, right. But I but I am curious. Without that, what would you have to do? I mean, because I imagine you didn't like you said you some of this is a recent you know installation. So right. did you just was it a part time of the year? Did you have to? stay in the vineyard with them and sort of smack them on the nose if they started eating like what was the solution when like especially i imagine you know there's a time where you can let them in and then Mm -hmm. there but then there are times where it's real sensitive you don't want them to eat all the shoots or you'll have no fruit at the end of the year you don't want them to eat you know too much of the leaves anyway so yeah yeah so so for years um for years i was doing a, a method called aversion training um, where you introduce grapevines, uh, to the, to the sheep sort of in like right around the same time where you're doing shoot, uh, thinning and uh-huh. let them eat the grapevines. And then you give them a dose, uh, that gives them a stomach ache essentially. And they, and, and that dose has, has no sort of flavor, uh, or, or odor to it. And so they Got associate it. that stomach ache with the grapevines. And what I found is, is that it, it, it's an incredibly hard method to, to maintain efficacy with that over time, there's such a social element to the way that, that, uh, ovines go about their diet. Um, so all it takes is one sheep nibbling on a leaf after that test and not having that reaction. And then they go, huh, wait a second. And then they try it again <laughs> and then someone else sees it 
uh, and right. they start mirroring that that behavior, and then it and then the wheels come off. And with each generation, right. it just sort of slowly gets like it works really well for a year, and then in year two, it doesn't work quite so well. And by year three, like right. the wheels start coming off. So I actually started moving to this electrified system several years ago. It's just now that that's sort of so for a while we actually had a mobile system on little wind up reels. And we moved it and it was, so we had two setups for one acre and it, I mean, you talk about a logistical nightmare, like it worked, but wow. it was so hard to move and it was so much labor. But I also didn't like, I just financially could not bite off installing a permanent system. So we just, it, it for a while it was, okay, we're just going to sweat our way. This is what we need to do. We know this works. We're going to sweat our way through it until we got to a place financially where we could install the system that we have now. Wild. Okay. So yeah. that is, that is good to know. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. And I mean, I know that there are the, like you said, there are the high cordon training trellises where, you know, you get up above like 50 inches and then, mm -hmm. but then, I mean, it's some, you're either, you have the draping canes, mm -hmm. which the, sheep can eat because right. they're hanging down i mean they might yeah. not get to the fruit yeah but they're gonna be <laughs> you're not gonna have much cane length right. or the or you're trying to train them up which is impossible like we said because you're getting up to like 10 feet then you know yeah. on a so, or you just do the pergola style and maybe and maybe that's you know i mean maybe you know look the yeah. italians did it for a long time and maybe right. that's why so yeah yeah, I've, uh, you know. I've seen those systems in in action and I just it has never really looked to me like something that I wanted to pursue because, you know, with like a single hanging wire trellis or something like that, you what you would see is that sheep would just grab canes. And, you know, so now you're getting broken canes. So you're getting like un, a, right. a, a canopy that becomes incredibly hard to manage if you're trying to do high quality wines because, you, you know, you get different uh link cane links out in the vineyard uh breaking but even if you're getting up you know really high with your head height and still going upward a, a sheep even a small sheep you know they'll stand up on their hind ends they'll they'll go up and they'll put their front feet up on on the wires you know and brace themselves right. and eat like they're they're pretty resourceful and even like little pudgy cute baby doll south down sheep like they can they can get up a lot higher. You know, I've seen them because that's where I've started. I've seen them walk around on their hind legs and grab canes, you know? Um, right. So all of those things make your canopy management, uh, so a nightmare. All right. So I'm going to mm -hmm. just, so just to go over this. So you, you're, you're putting a, you're sectioning off a block with mm -hmm. like a, a fence that you have installed on the deer fence. And then you're, you're essentially turning on the wires in that block mm -hmm. while the sheep are in there and the Correct. pigs yeah now picture and so I, that's a little transition mm -hmm. to the pigs because I, in your a couple questions about that i see pictures that you guys have online of the sheep and the pigs together and i'm curious mm -hmm. if there's any pros and cons of that but also you know pigs represent their own mm -hmm. difficulties in that they like to dig and mm -hmm. root up and will easily you know sort of damage roots shallow roots of vines especially if a vine isn't well established if you're talking mm -hmm. you know younger vines right. it's a real sensitive thing to bring sheep into a vineyard mm -hmm. so do the Cooney Coonies, because I know they're shorter nose, they don't mm -hmm. maybe root as deeply. Is that mm -hmm. part of why you use them? Yeah. Uh, or is there, or how do you manage 
the pigs and, and the sheep together. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I um, I am a huge fan for uh, for a lot of reasons of of Cooney Cooney pigs. Um, they they tend to do not they tend to it, it, during the growing season they they do almost no rooting. So when as long oh. as they have, they'll start rooting when they feel like they need to look for food. Um, but if they're getting, you know, if there's enough protein in the grass out there, that one of the things about these pigs is they are probably the most grazing prone breed of pig that there is. Oh, wow. And, and what okay. I've, what we have found is that we actually, in sort of the peak of spring, early summer, need to limit their grass intake because they will actually get over fat just on grass. Like they can get so fat that their faces close up and they can't see um, because they get like fat rolls around their eyes. So Now are you seeding cro- cover crops that, no. that provide certain nutrients for them? No, it's just no, whatever whole, reseeds a, itself. A, a, a huge, huge underpinning of, of this of this philosophy is as reduced or no tillage, um, which we'll get into hopefully down, down the line here a bit in this conversation, but that's, that's more about like, you know, fostering a, a, a specific, uh, microbial population to, to the vineyard. Yeah. Um, no, but I, even with the no till, I didn't know if you were scattering, you know, alfalfa or anything out there just to make sure that they had, you know, something, yeah. various nutrient needs yeah, were being no, met by the... Uh, uh, like the idea again being to to really pursue the most truthful and natural terroir that we have here. So, so it was important to me. We used to do, you know, tillage, work everything up, eliminate everything that's there, drill a cover crop, you know, and then mow it down and incorporate it back when I was doing, you know, what I kind of call conventional organics um uh, now my thinking has changed more to say like look if we are really pursuing the truth of this place then we need to allow the vineyards floor to just slowly revert back to um you know native uh native flora uh, you know, or at least mm. what adapts, you know, like I'm not trying to say that we haven't changed this place. We've changed it profoundly by introducing all these animals. But what we have done is kind of set up this self-sustaining ecosystem and then and then saying again, like whatever thrives here under these conditions, that is what we want. And we don't want to bring in things that, you know, like doing a cover crop requires us to go out and eliminate the other competition and and you know bring something from some other place in the valley and then and then drill that that crop in and it requires special outside care for its particular needs in order to thrive uh, you know right. we, we have right. to take away the things that belong here um <laughs> so so the so to kind of have like an overarching view of what the system looks like um, yeah, please. D- it depends. It depends there. on it depends on the time of the year. Like sometimes okay. the pigs are with the sheep, uh, sometimes they're leading. But normally, what the system really looks like is we have pigs leading the procession, um, uh, and they're just kind of you know. And part of that is we don't quite have our numbers where we want to yet with the pig program. But they're they're leading the the grazing and they're kind of creaming things over and. 
taking the clover and all the, you know, all the kind of, uh, they're getting the Oreos and Doritos out of the, out of the way. Um, and then coming behind that are the sheep and the geese working together. Um, so the sheep and the geese are, are a hundred percent from, from cradle to processing hundred percent grass fed animals here on the farm. So they have zero outside inputs going in into them. And then coming behind that, we have our poultry, which kind of acts as like a sanitation crew. So they go through and what they're doing is ideally we're moving pigs and sheep ahead of uh, the hatching periods for parasites that will be hatching out in their manure. So then the chickens are coming back through and scratching that manure all over, exposing those parasites to sunlight, to rainfall, but also literally like, like eating the larvae and eating the eggs and cleaning things up for the next pass. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, they'll scratch out, you know, sometimes we'll go around and and throw scratch grain in places where we're like, Oh, we want to eliminate some competition on the vines here, things like that. And so the chickens will target those weeds and and eliminate them for us. Now, I mean, chickens, I find to be super destructive to grasslands as well. I mean, we don't have a yard thanks to our chickens. Um, I imagine if they're given enough space, it's probably limited in the kind of damage that they can do because they're moving around so much. But is that the case? I mean, do you have any problems with them, concerns? Um, No. I mean, the key, again, is movement, movement, movement. You know, that is movement is what keeps everything healthy and and allows things to, you know, like we don't use. Uh, you know, we don't use wormers. We don't even, you know, we don't vaccinate our sheep or our pigs for anything. I haven't done it for more than 10 years. Um, you know, we put no medications into our animals. Um, and just again, to be clear, that only applies to the animals. Yeah, the rest that's of true. Us. <laughs> yeah, and Tikkun Farm is fully vaccinated. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the humans, the humans are, the humans uh, are cool. Yeah. Um, but, but, but you, you know, also aren't eating the larva out of your chickens. Yeah, that is true. Sheep we, poop, we also so. try to not eat the, the larvae, <laughs> correct. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, we have, we haven't done, I don't think we've done any vaccinations for more than a decade at least. And, and that, that again is attributed to, to always staying ahead of pests and, and not coming back to any piece of ground inside of, inside of those kind of hatching incubation periods, uh, and, for, and- isn't there uh, isn't there like a 30 day window f- or more for bacteria like you know sort of harmful bacteria that as long as you don't revisit that that piece of land again that basically every all the all of the bacteria that would be in the the droppings of the animals will have basically resubsumed into the soil and been taken over by you know the normal soil microbiome and be safe again is that do you, yes, is there, do you know about yes for for the most part i mean there are some okay. parasites that can live an incredibly long time and just sit dormant and and okay. uh, and and there are also certain you know certain viruses and things that you can get into your soils that like once they're there they're there so I, I think that yeah. that's, you know, think about it like, like with overuse of antibiotics in our food chain or, or in medicine with people, it's, it's not that you are trying to create an environment where there is no virus or no parasites. It's that you're trying to foster a population that can deal with what you have. 
Um, right. You know, and, and at the same time, use good management tools to, to stay, to keep those loads as low as possible. But like, I don't ever for a second, you actually don't want sheep who have no parasites because then when they do get them, which they will get them, uh, then they die. Um, and right. that was, you know, I, I, um, uh, two years ago, I, you know, I had a neighbor that had some sheep that I just really liked the look of. And honestly, like it was my kids going like their sheep are so much cuter than ours. And I was like, yeah, ours are ugly, but they're, but they're hearty and they're delicious, you know? And, <laughs> and we had this argument for years. And so finally one year I, I was talking to the neighbor and he's like, yeah, I got this Ram. If you want to buy him, like try him out. And, and I, and I bought him and, and he came to our farm and like, he just got immediately when he came onto our place, like he just, he didn't, he'd been babied in a program, you know, for years, he'd been wormed every, you know, every two or three months and, you know, vaccinated for this and vaccinated for that. And he just perished at like in short yeah. order. It was, it was crazy. Um, wow. I, you know, I hadn't, and, and I just hadn't experienced anything like that for so long, you know, um, yeah. it's he, like the he, war of the worlds. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. that like with children, you know, like with raising children where they say, prepare your kid for the road, not the road for your kid. You know, it, that, this, right. this, this particular Ram had had his road paved a little too much. For Got him. it. Right. So, and, um, and yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So the, so you have the the pigs quickly followed by the sheep quickly followed by the or the sheep and geese followed mm -hmm. by the chickens does anything else come in do the ducks come into play at any point or are they no, sort so of i i don't i uh, i kind of tend to discount the ducks <laughs> because they're okay. just they're just there for amusement and personality show ducks they're, yeah they're show <laughs> right. ducks they're they're top tier show ducks they they are they are just worked in with you know i kind of consider the waterfowl to be a unit so they'll the ducks and the geese will got it typically be there with uh with the sheep you know with the exception of in, in the winter time um and then when we're when we're hatching um so and the other important part of this is to consider the resources of the farm and the way that that changes with the seasons um and mm, and this is one yeah. of the reasons that we um really quickly moved to really becoming a fully functioning farm and having having lambing and hatching out geese and you know it that your numbers need to change to reflect the availability of the resources on the farm like we cannot uh, have in february the numbers that we have in june and got it and 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 vice versa you know because because if we have the numbers that we have in mid winter in june then we are not actually uh utilizing the full potential to to use solar energy to generate uh you know organic matter and capture capture and store carbon in the soil um which gets us into you know the kind of why we're doing this to like create this microbial hum that that actually changes and feeds the personality of the wines like that that's where this actually really starts getting interesting like the system itself is is fun and it's interesting and it's cool work but like how it comes into effect the fruit and the wines is is where it actually goes like oh so that's so that's why you do this uh at all um 
so th so that is the idea is, is to to rotate through the site you know multiple multiple times i mean we probably do about 12 rotations a year through the sites um with all of these animals and they all affect it in a different way and mm -hmm. and each time that we're grazing and reducing above ground biomass we're creating uh die off of the root mass as there as that root mass with each grazing recedes to match that reduction of biomass above ground which really affects the microbial population in the soil yeah. as, as it adapts amazing i can't imagine i mean i can imagine a little bit that sounds incredible um so but it sounds like some i mean i, I just want to underline some of the big challenges that somebody doing this would face mm -hmm. isn't so much about you know the animal specific care but the infrastructure mm -hmm. behind that care and mm -hmm. and how to actually incorporate them into the vineyard where you're not harming the animal or harming the vineyard or whatever the you know the perennial that you're you're putting them into mm -hmm. um so that a big a big thing for somebody thinking about doing this is just that infrastructure and everything that's involved in that and you've really highlighted some of those uh really important things i want to just back to the kuni kunis for a minute those mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are tend to be smaller is that mm -hmm. they tend to be a smaller pig they also are slower growing than mm -hmm. some of the the commercial breeds that you might find yeah. otherwise people using just because you could you could have you know a, a huge pig in six months with a commercial breed and i think kuni right. kunis are more like a year right like 10 months to 12 months something like that if i'm correct yeah um and and you but that that fits your plan i mean that's mm -hmm. that's okay with you especially because of the way that they interact with the soil and the vineyard and and that they're such good grazers and mm -hmm. their size and everything else it sounds like their personality is pretty nice too they're pretty sweet pigs yeah yeah i mean we tend to with all of uh our livestock um you know and and raising proteins on the farm a part of the philosophy is is to do to raise things slower um i mm. i think that it's it's healthier for the animals uh you know they have a better life um you have less complications i also think that you get a better product you get you get some mm. you know it's just like it's just like growing wine you know uh, a longer slower cooler growing season if you can get to peak ripeness more slowly um, as opposed to, you know, gee, we hit, you know, 24% sugar in August and why does the wine suck? Um, you know, it's, it's, it is the same way with a chicken. It's the same way with lamb and it's, a, and I believe it's the same way with pork, you know, growing things, mm -hmm. growing things quickly, I, I think makes weird texture and a lot of fat and, and things that are not, uh, all that, all that delicious. Um, so, so with the pork, I the like fat. <laughs> well, I, I do too. I'm, I'm not saying fat is, <laughs> is evil. I'm just saying that you get like, you get like better yellow, delicious fat and, and got it. And, okay. And, and things just have more complexity and intensity and flavor. Um, Thank like, you for clarifying that. <laughs> so, so what I've, what I've moved to with the pigs and, and I've, I think that you know, 99.9% .9 of anyone that raises pork is going to want to call BS on this. But like what I have, what I've come around to with the Cooney Coonies is, is that actually feeding them at all past maybe the first three months of their life, um, actually leads to 
health complications and what we've moved mm. to now and really actually seems to be working is allow them to graze through the growing season. And then as things dry out, now we have, you know, apples starting to fall off of trees and acorns falling off. So putting them into orchards, putting them into oak groves. Um, and then now through the winter, we have them up in the forest uh, in lands they're working with our goats to help, you know, kind of reduce fire risk in some areas. And we, ha we have not fed those pigs at all. And they look great. Like they're growing, they're healthy, they're vigorous. Um, and we're, we are, you know, raising what is considered to be the most sort of input intensive, uh, livestock animal without actually putting any feed to them at all. And they're, and they're thriving. So it's, it's a breed of pig that I, I really wow. believe in them. You know, the, the trade-off is they're half the size, you know, instead of, instead of, right. uh, instead of butchering a 300 it, pound, right. Yeah. It's not, it's not a 220, 250 pound thing at six months. It's instead, it's, it's going to be 125, 150 at, you know, 12 to 14 months. So, so the Got idea it. is we'll take them through the forest, uh, during the winter and let them help clear out blackberries and scotch broom and all these invasive mm. non non-native nasties and and let them forage uh through the winter and then we'll finish them out on spring grass just the same as we're finishing uh lamb wow yeah, yeah. that's incredible um yeah. and a beautiful system i i mean so much there i, I know that you're using the goats to help you know, create fire breaks as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you do, I, I imagine goats would be the one thing you would tell people not to put in your vineyard. Correct. Yeah, that, that would be. <laughs> they that can get on big, top of anything, right? Yeah, that would be a big <laughs> They mistake. could climb that 10-foot trellis. They could climb the pergola even if we built it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're foragers and they, uh, they're browsers and they, they would, uh, it would be impossible. I, I think it would be impossible to keep them out of the vines. But, but we've found but, but, a, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. But still, you, you still very helpful around the farm, especially if you're living in on the West Coast, where we are now. You know, fire season is a real thing, like we were talking about, and and yeah. you know, it's a regular thing now. It's not just a once in a while. Like we need to start, you know, implementing these solutions, like these goats, to you know, to get rid of some of that that fire fuel in the right. forests and yeah. and create breaks us yeah on a um, small on a small family farm like like ours you know with, with limited you know admittedly limited capital uh you know sometimes it takes a, a a while for plans to come to full fruition um and and goats have been part of our plan for some time uh but at the same time given our location given our our specific predator load um we could never do this without uh, a a really big pack of of big active dogs to keep the goats safe. So there was there was right. kind of this entire sequence of events that had to to fall into line, and not the least of which was again that that sort of marital negotiation process of are we going to have puppies, and uh, <laughs> which which we finally did, um, and and then you know we had twelve beautiful puppies and and most of them have have moved on uh to other farms and and have fantastic careers and lives um and we <laughs> you know we and that was that process of 
preparing those dogs to go out and, and handing off dogs that were extremely well prepared and bonded uh, to livestock was one of the most rewarding things I've, I've done in my, in my working life. Um, uh, but we retained uh, several of the puppies out of the litter in order for us to round out this program. And, and, then, and then we went out and got our goats. And, and that program has, has been, it's, it's new for us. Um, but the impact has been amazing and and the the difference in our property in areas that uh for you know gosh two decades now i walk by and i'm like oh man i really like it bothers me that it looks like that and that these blackberries are just taking this over and i mean we've we've already moved through i'm gonna say uh eight or nine acres that that they've just absolutely transformed um wow yeah, it's Fantastic. it's fun. I mean, we we have a lot of ground still left to cover, and we'll have to keep rotating back through. Um, we need a lot more goats to do everything we want to yeah, do. Yeah, I was going to say. But, and um, what's what's really cool to see too is what happens with wildlife after that. You know, because when when you have a when you have a forest that's just choked with blackberries and non-native species, like you know, mice and squirrels and and little birds and stuff can use it, but like it's not fully available to to like the full array of of the fauna for the area and you go back through and you know you do this thing that maybe initially appears to be kind of uh unnatural and invasive but then once they rotate out and it begins to recover you start seeing all the other animals moving back in and using the area and you just get so much more diversity it's really cool yeah that's an that's awesome okay so i mean what what we what we were talking about was a lot of this incredible farming and the infrastructure behind it and the, you know, sort of this whole ecosystem that you've created. And what you, I think, want to talk about is how, what does that add up to in the soil, which then translates into the wine? Am I, am I asking yeah, the right yeah, question correct. there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, two, two of the most powerful things that we've done, some of the most meaningful steps that we've taken in this system uh, have been actually to, to remove two things that are sort of underpinnings of, of most sustainable agriculture. Um, and that is the elimination of a, of a cover cropping system. And then also uh, getting away from uh, fertilization of any kind. Um, when I, when I think about uh, agriculture in general, or whether we're talking about conventional or organic or biodynamic, um, I, I think that there are some areas where <clears throat> maybe we are looking at things through the wrong lens. Um, the, the first would be with cover cropping. My, my experience here on the farm has been that you know, every, the, the conventional thinking with cover cropping is, you know, you grow this giant biomass crop, um, let it come up almost to maturity, uh, normally what they kind of call boot stage, where it's just about to flower, it's just setting flowers, um, you know, depending on the timing that you need for the crop that you're trying to grow, and then you mow it down. And then in most cases, then you, you know, you till it into the soil. So you're trying to take all that organic matter that you've generated, um, and, and incorporate it into the soil. And the thinking mm. is, is that, is that you're mining nutrients, uh, from deep in the soil with the root system. 
and then uh, and then breaking that up and then and then working that back into the soil. Um, there's a couple things that happen when, when you do that. So as you till the soil, you get this injection of oxygen into the soil. So when people are talking about the benefits with these systems, they'll say, you know, well, it, you know, it stimulates the microbes in the soil and you get this, you know, this kick of, of organic matter and nutrients that happen in the soil. And all that is true. But when you look a little deeper and you look further down the road, what you'll actually see is you get this, this spike of microbial action that happens from that, from that burst of oxygen that you've, that you've sort of artificially introduced into the soil. And that spike of microbial activity will really quickly burn up all of that organic matter. So you get this burst of, of, of nutrition in the soil uh, and this burst of microbial activity but then like in any population where things surge, you'll get a crash. And so I, I, when, I, when I say that I think we're looking at cover cropping possibly through the, the wrong lens, that we kind of changed the way that we were looking at it more in the sense of that the above ground biomass, so the part of the plant that you see, is really just kind of for us, it's like the bonus material. Um, using that as forage and passing that through the digestive system of animals. So thinking about um, thinking about a farm almost more like in terms of, of gut health and like having diverse uh, microfauna that mm -hmm. have the potential to change the, the, my, the microbial culture of a place. So, you, you know, you think about all those digestive enzymes and everything that's happening and, you know, sheep have four stomachs and when, to me, you know, when they belch, it smells beautiful. <laughs> you know, it smells, it smells to me like fertility. I've never had the pleasure of smelling a sheep belch. Oh yeah. No, you, you gotta, you gotta milk a sheep and then they'll, you know, turn around, they'll burp in your face and it's, it's beautiful. You know, it smells so, you know, it smells, it's fermentation and it smells fertile mm. and it, and it, you know, and, and so we think of that as almost like inoculant material, um, you know, and the same thing for any, any of the animals that we're using in, in the vineyard. So chickens and, and, and pigs. And so all of that diversity of animal life in the place is building up the microbial complexity of the place. But moreover, what's happening is, is when you think about the biomass of that cover crop, what we're really looking at is the root mass of those, of those cover crops. So every time that we graze, what happens is as you reduce that above ground biomass, you get a die off of the root mass underground. And so now what happens is you do get uh, an introduction of, of oxygen as that root mass sort of begins to decay. To, to decay. So, so right. the soil gets sort of reopened and gets channelized, but it's in a much more natural and sustainable, a less intrusive way. There isn't this sort of violent injection of oxygen. What right. also is happening as, is, as that root mass is dying off, that begins to to stimulate the microbial life but 
Right. At the same time, what's happening is so we've grazed that off, that root mass is dying off, but at the same time, the above ground biomass is now recovering and growing back. So as long as we don't come back and overgraze and, and come back to that piece of ground too quickly, we need to allow it to have time to breathe and rest and then recover. And so now that root mass is rebuilding. And so you're thinking about that we're rotating through the site, you know, uh, 12, 13, maybe, you know, in some years, 17 times in the year. So you think of all those cycles of the sort of the soil breathing in and out with that root mass as it, as it rebuilds and then dies off and rebuilds and dies off. And so you're building this sustained kind of buzz of microbial action in the soil. But at the same time, the other really powerful thing that we've done is we've eliminated all fertilization. So we stopped using uh, uh, organic fertilizers back in, gosh, what's it been now? I think 2007 was when we began weaning off and we were completely off by 2010. And so if you think of now, what we're doing is we're, we're setting up this this ecosystem in the vineyard while also eliminating anything from outside of the vineyard fences. And so what begins to happen is now the microbial life and the same thing where earlier we talked about, you know, all of the, all the animals and everything on this farm that we're, we're selecting them over time to make sure that they, that they can thrive on the resources that this property has to offer. The same thing is happening with the microbial life in our soils in that mm. they are able to get by on these resources. They're able to thrive on these resources. So over time, just by natural selection, um, I, you know, sometimes I like to, to say, you know, think about like take a bunch of teenagers and throw them out on an island somewhere, um, you know, and, and leave them, leave them a bunch of, you know, uh, don't leave them condoms <laughs> and, and leave them a bunch of beer and some chips and salsa, you know, and, and come back in 500 years. And, you know, as long as they've made it, what you're going to find when you come back is, is a, is a very distinct population of people that are adapted to live on that Island. Right. So that is, that is the way that I, that I look at the microbial life in our vineyard. So, so as that's happening, and as, as it's happening in this in this vacuum without uh, without soluble soluble fertilizers being added to the vineyard, can I ask you a mm -hmm. question or two? Mm -hmm. Sure. Do you? Uh, I'm guessing you're composting. Do you mm -hmm. use any compost as fertilizer in the we vineyard? We do, we do not. We do not. So, okay. So it's so all just was, the natural. Yeah. Yeah, I the, mean the, the the animals, uh, the animal manure, and just the dieback and the litter of the of the ground cover of the whatever whatever lives in the vineyard. That's it. Yeah, I mean um, every every yeah, true. I mean every now and then, you know, you just read a little a little golden nugget that somebody has laid out there for you to discover. And I, I remember reading just in one of Elliot Coleman's uh, gardening, uh, you know, vegetable gardening books, um, just the, the the kind of phrase. I don't even remember exactly how he put it, but it was, it was essentially just like uh, he was thinking about compost piles and was saying like, you know, if you can just, just 
skip the pile um you know like like skip like skip <laughs> right. the ca- skip the cow and let the earthworms be your cows so, so right. that's sort of like how do we skip this process because to me building for one like i have yet i have never actually seen a vineyard like the compost piles that i see at commercial biodynamic vineyards are when you consider the amount of tonnage that is actually required to fuel a vineyard. You know, this this was kind of one of my founding thoughts as I was trying to figure out how to feed, feed a vineyard in a truly self-contained way. And visiting these, these, you know, other, you know, biodynamic vineyards, organic vineyards, and seeing these compost piles that, you know, quite honestly, wouldn't even fuel like a large community garden, you know? Right, um, yeah. they They aren't, they... <laughs> They make us feel good, but I'm not sure that they really actually are are impacting anything. I mean, you you are talking yeah. about you know fifty I mean, to you know to twenty to twenty five tons per acre per year. I mean, you were talking about you know a a a Pentagon <laughs> this size building of of <laughs> compost every year to fuel a a, a medium sized vineyard, right? Right. Um, so. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it eliminates waste. There are good things. People should compost. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like yes. the, the idea that you'll get all of your fertility from your, you know, on farm compost pile mm-hmm. might be a stretch. Yeah. And I mean, again, this is, this is not to like trash on methods. Like I think that anybody that's trying to do things in a more sustainable way, like those are all very positive steps. It, you know, it's just like I was saying before, I, st- I still want to just keep advancing the discussion and and trying to push um, the the conversation around sustainability um, and especially around terroir, I want to keep pushing those those ideas mm. forward. So so we do right. compost. We compost for for our vegetable garden, um, right? You know, and we do a little bit of composting if we have extra. We'll use it in our pastures. Um, I Can, don't. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, one other question related to all of this do you are you tracking or measuring uh you know nutrient your soil nutrition things like that do you know if you've built you know nitrogen like do you see that and and i mean does that translate into the wine into yans that you have seen increase yeah Yeah, we we do we do track this um because of course we we need to (laughs) we need to know that this isn't all just like a beautiful idea, you know. Right. I, I have I have no interest in doing something that's going to cause my vineyard to to crash or cause my farm to crash. Um, so there was a really uh, interesting correlation into some of the uh, in into the ways that like the fruit and the wines shifted, and and how that related to what we saw in our soil analysis. And that's that from that mm. 2007 to 2010 uh, vintage period where, where I was weaning off of organic fertilizers. Um, what we did see um, is in soil analysis and in tissue samples, um, we, we saw this sort of initial downward trend in fertility, and we did see the vines get really kind of wonky and and devigorated and, and things got a little awkward. Um, and 2010, honestly, was the year where I was kind of starting to think about pulling the plug. Um, and, but when we had bud break in 2010, 
uh, I noticed that suddenly the plants seemed to have dug in and settled in and they looked healthy and happy. Um, and at the same time, we saw two things. We saw that the soil labs came back and still said that the soils were deficient. But when we started pulling tissue samples, everything looked balanced and beautiful. So, oh, wow. which continues to this day, but now we're actually starting to see uh, fertility in the last, I'm going to say the last five years, we're seeing actual like soluble measurable fertility showing back up on soil analysis. And we're seeing things like, wow. I have not limed my vineyard, I think for eight years and like calcium uh -huh. and magnesium are just dialed. It like, it doesn't actually make sense, but it's, but it's wow. happening. Um, so, so one yeah, other question, so, what, what age were the vines when, in 2007, when you started that transition, 2007, they'd be eight years old at that point. Okay. Time. Yeah. Got it. So, so which kind of leads me into talking about, you know, the, the way that we, that we think about soil fertility, you know, I think that that's another area where maybe we may be thinking about these things in, in, in a way that we should look at, um, you know, when we're testing for soil fertility, they are measuring for soluble nutrients. Um, and then the lab based on, on the results will make recommendations to replenish soluble nutrients. Um, and what isn't being considered in that picture all the, are the insoluble nutrients that are, that are bound up in the soils. And, you know, in, in soils like the, these here in the Southern Willamette Valley, I mean, there is an almost inexhaustible sea of insoluble nutrients. Hmm. The, the, and the reason why I think, you know, agricultural industry in general looks at, at soil nutrients this way is because there are so many things in the kind of conventional uh, wide view agricultural model that take microbial action out of the picture. So, you know, tillage is, you know, whether you're organic or conventional or whatever you're doing, like tillage is, is almost sometimes in, in organic farming, like to come off of using herbicides, you're doing a lot more tillage to, to right. uh, uh, reduce your competition for your crop. Um, so, you know, agricultural tillage is, is one of the major factors in, in carbon release and, and global warming. Uh, so everything right. that we can do to reduce tillage, this is not, by the way, I'm putting this in parentheses, this is not an argument to use herbicide. Um, but any, anything, <laughs> that, anything that you can do to minimize or, or, or eliminate altogether tillage is, is a really uh, positive step. Um, and so what begins to happen in the vineyard is when you step out of having soluble fertilizers, which also kind of break the communication chain between microbes and plants, and you step away from tillage, as you begin to get these associations and communications that are happening between microbial culture and plant life. And so those microbes begin to colonize the root hairs of the vines and every other plant in, in the site right. for that matter. And they're, and they will break down the insoluble nutrients in the site and deliver that to the root hairs of the plant. 
and on its face, there seems to be there's no benefit to the to the microbes for them doing that. They're getting nothing out of it. But what starts happening is this exchange begins to happen where now the plants start kicking back carbohydrate reserves in their form of simple sugars going back to the microbes. So the microbes are getting fed as they're feeding the vines. So you go back to that idea of like the kids on the island. Right. Um, what you now have is this distinct, adapted, mutating or evolving population of, my, of microbial culture that is entirely in charge of feeding your vines. So now we get into like, how does this affect the wines? And that's where it gets fascinating because what we started seeing in 2010, as the vineyard sort of adapted and dug in and got comfortable with its new reality, as this new, as this new microbial population began to shift and take over, is the vines completely changed. The fruit, the fruit changed, like in terms of, of chemical composition of, of the juice and the, and the resulting wines, we had our Pinot Noir in, in one year. So up to the 2002 vintage, it looked like Pinot Noir. It was um, thin-skinned, pretty tight clusters for the most part everywhere. And, and the color of the fruit was that typical like purplish black. Um, in one year, every single berry in the vineyard became just blueberry blue. Like it looks like Nebbiolo or Syrah. Like it's just, it's the, it's the wrong color for Pinot Noir. Yeah, it's wild. Probably 35 or 40% of the vines uh, in that site, their, their physical growth habit changed. So up until that vintage, uh, everything grew like Pinot Noir, meaning it was kind of floppy and hard to manage in the canopy. You know, it wants to fall out of the trellis constantly. And somewhere between, you know, 35 to 40% of the vines began growing like Riesling. They got this very like rigid, upright growth habit, and they became a dream to like do canopy management on. Um, wow. Yeah. Our Vadensville block, the clusters all started, they, they begin the season. The flowers are, are hanging downward, like, like normal Pinot Noir. And then as they flower, they stand up on their stems and they sit upside down and they'll actually almost go all the way to harvest sitting, you know, as inverted clusters. Um, <laughs> it's, it's why it's completely wild. That's amazing. You know, and it, and it's not uncommon to see like little color variations and things like that in, in, uh, Pinot varietals. Um, but in our Pinot Gris, in that same vintage, we started seeing, um, kind of dual toned, uh, berries. So some, so some clusters, you know, Pinot Gris being kind of a light purple, uh, skin tone on the fruit some clusters or some sometimes the entire plant became like chardonnay or pinot blanc in in color um but then we would also see clusters that were mixed sometimes you'll see berries that are like split right down the middle all these weird like little fractal patterns on the berry so like half of the berry is green and the other half and and we don't know what it is um and the other half is is uh it looks like Pinot Gris. Some of it looks like Pinot Noir. Like it looks more like Pinot Noir than our Pinot Noir. Um, but, it, <laughs> but it tastes like pineapples and mangoes. Like it's, it's Wild. really cool. Um, 
So as we started seeing that, you know, and, and again, thinking about these microbial cultures in, in the site, you know, it's not like you look at the site and say, um, this, it's all doing this one thing. So our, our Pinot Gris site is all one clone planted on one rootstock. But um, what we began to see were three totally different ripening and uh, profiles and, and flavor profiles developing in the site. Um, and what I have to think is happening there uh, is that, you know, sort of different different microbial cultures are becoming dominant in different parts of the vineyard, you know, based upon probably little subtle differences in soil and elevation and, and aspect and, and things like that. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a way of growing that requires um, going a lot slower and paying a lot more attention, (laughs) Uh, you know, being able to, to see what's, what's presenting uh, in front of us in, in real time. Yeah. Or, or starting the vineyard that way, if you have, you know, if, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I, I know if, if uh, there, there are some wise people who say we shouldn't be planting any more vineyards, there are plenty out there and mm-hmm. don't clear any more land for vineyards. Right. Um, but, but if you were, um, you know, like we're doing here at our, at our house in uh, Los Angeles, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think we're taking any land away from right. native landscape in right. our backyard. Um, <laughs> just removing a lawn originally. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, yeah, but it's like, you you know, I think we've, we've seen that, like, I, you know, I've been doing this podcast for a a few years now, or two and a half years, and talking about these things and learning about them. And, and meanwhile, been executing that in with our, our little home vineyard. And it really is like this year, I just, I mean, the fermentation was like the best fermentations I've smelled Mm -hmm. any time in my life. Like there is just a quality now that's happening that's just unbelievable and it's so you know the exciting thing is you you're like like you said you you don't want it to just be something that you you think and you hope and that's sort of like it sounds nice Mm -hmm. you want it to be quantifiable too like this is we're you know we're we're talking about solutions for for big problems and if it can't just be well it you know i you know it makes me feel good (laughs) to do that you know it has to have like a measurable outcome and and it's just so it's very exciting when you can see that happening, um, you know, and I, I mean, the, what I was saying was the advantage for us was, you know, we, we kind of had that knowledge as we were planting. And so we as the vines are growing into their their soil, they're already getting all of that, you know, like they're not being tilled, they're having access to a microbial community that continues to feed and grow and cover crops and things like that that continue to to add to it and, you know, become an exponential fertility. And so by the time you start harvesting grapes at year three, they're all, they're already in that zone where they're just like, you know, woohoo, you know, doing their, their, their fun thing. Um, Yeah, exactly. I, I love that. And, and, and that is, that's the thing that we've absolutely seen uh, as this has evolved is that um, you kind of have to, shrug off your expectations you know i know that andrew sees things all the time in the cellar that that just defy all sort of academic expectations around winemaking and you kind of Mm. have to just shrug your shoulders and go 
Well, I've never, I've never, you know, you have to say I've, I've never read about this or heard about this. Is it, is it expressive? Is it beautiful? You know, is it authentic to this place? And, and if it is, then, then it's good, you know? And, and yeah. so it's been a process of, of, you know, not to discount the work that has come before us at all. Um, but to sort of layer it on as, as another experience um, and, and just write a, a kind of a different chapter about, uh, you know, finding the voice of a place through wine and, and, you know, knowing that, that, that can lead to some really wonderful and unexpected places. Um, if you just, you know, if you farm in a way that, that sort of, breaks the chain of, of, uh, all the other, you know, materials that, that people, uh, have available to them and, and just create something that is entirely your own. Yeah. I, I feel like that gets at the essence. Like you, you keep talking about terroir and I, I really think whatever name we give to that, I, I feel like, I mean, if, if we aren't striving for that, like then I, then, you know, it just becomes a commercial pursuit. You know, it's yeah. less artistic yeah. or less meaningful to me personally. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, the wines I want to try are the, are the ones that are like yours, you know, right. yeah. regardless, it's not a, it's not about a style of wine that I like. It's, mm -hmm. it's that foundational, you know, where, where it comes from, where the, the intention behind it yeah. um, and that, that sense of uniqueness um whatever whatever however that's expressed you know yeah. um uh, yeah it's really i think that's the that's at the soul of what i love about wine personally absolutely uh, so here's my question for you which is going to sound a little strange but you know how important actually is wine to all of this like is it mm -hmm. the is it the highlight or is it the is it the reason for all of this or have you found that i mean like you said you didn't really get into it as your reason for doing this mm -hmm. um but i imagine it has a big impact on the wine but you know i'm just curious philosophically how how does wine fit in your mind in relation to everything that you're doing and then but then also how does it get affected by everything that you're doing right um for, for me <laughs> you know if i am fully honest um i mean i have come to care about wine um, <laughs> because it is the, the, the thing that allows me to, to do the kind of work that I, that I really want to do. Um, I, yeah. I, I see wine as this fantastic medium to deliver a larger message and maybe to deliver a larger message to, um, to a, a segment of the population that has the potential to, to make the most impact, meaning, you know, some mm -hmm. of our, our, uh, you know, larger consumers on the planet. Um, yeah. And so I think it's powerful that way, but it's also powerful in that wine has this unique ability to, to articulate the voice of a, of a place. Um, and coming back to that, I, I farm here, you know, I, I was born and raised in this area, you know, only four miles away from this farm. And I have a profound sense of belonging, 
uh, and self-identity that, that, that is tied up in this place. Um, so this, mm. is, this is my home and it is almost impossible for me at this point to sort of untangle my sense of self from this piece of land. So like, it's kind of, it's kind of what I, it's, it's like what I have to offer. And so, and, and so, so wine's, wine's ability uh, to communicate something clearly, you know, and I don't, and I don't think like all wine communicates clearly, you know, um, it's, it's the thing I always look for uh, in wine is, is like, you know, does this thing really actually have something clear and different to, to say? Um, or yeah. is it just sort of a reflection of a varietal and a region and a vintage? Um, you know, I think there's sort of like another potential level to, to, to that communication. Um, so, so for that reason, wine has become important to me because I think, I think it has this ability to communicate some things that I feel are really important. Um, it, it, it also, you know, it just, it, it allows me to go out there and play with pigs, you know? Um, so, so that's, that's what I, you know, that's, that's kind of what it means to me. I think it means a very different thing. You know, it, Andrew has a different, a, like different headspace and, and, and mental capacity for wine than, than I do. He has one of those fantastic <laughs> minds that is able to categorize and remember things and keep track of, of, of stuff. I, I'm not wired that way. <laughs> so. Well, well, uh, I mean, if, if you're okay, talking, speaking to that and speaking to how you've seen the land, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the kind of farming that's happening there, Andrew become, you know, a unique thing in the wine, please. I would love to hear. Yeah. It's, there's a real sense and um, I, I think that like the uh, humans, the limitation of sight is a very real perspective. Um, you know, we, we have to operate in ways uh, that are above ground for most of us, most of the time. And like, and, and we take what we see and we're often not thinking about all the things that we can't see or what is, what is hidden or what might be alive um, and in this context, what's alive in the soil and what's connective, you know, um, how, how, you know, um, fungus and bacteria and all sorts of things and insects and other creepy crawlies move through the ground that we walk on, uh, on a regular basis. Like it's not part of most of our daily life and, and everything that Stephen is doing in terms of farming is to grow soil. It is, it is growing what we cannot see. Uh, and, and it's, nice to have a little bit of space to have kind of, you know, not to confuse causation and correlation, um, but to, but to know that that life is going on and that we, it is precious and we want to protect it. Um, and, and understanding that when we do that, particularly in a, a vineyard system that as uh, you know, the, the vine root systems are colonized by all of these creatures and and all of the things that are growing there uh, as long as we are not um, uh, actively being an intermediary as humans in that life cycle of the vine and it's and it's growing cycle it will do the work that we want it 
to do largely on its own. Now, you know, that's mostly in terms of like water uptake and nutrient uptake and, you know, um, how those things move through the plant are obviously regulated by the plant. We're not poking things in and trying to move, you know, through the xylem and phloem what we want. Um, but then we are still obviously training the plant and we're putting it on a trellis and we're guiding, you know, that solar panel of the canopy straight up so that particularly in the climate of, of Northwestern Oregon, like we need to maximize as much sunlight generally as we possibly can. And so getting, getting those canopy structured. So it's not that it's without human interaction, um, right. but we do want to see that piece of, of the life of the soil um, and how the plant takes up its nutrients, you know, so that like we don't spray foliar feeds, right? We're not coming through and being like, let's, let's, you know, come in through the tractor and just spray a bunch of potassium into the canopy and like, like make sure that that, 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 um, you know, when we take a, a petiole sample that like now it's got enough potassium, like we did it right sort of thing. Like, like we're not interested, we're not interested in that. Um, if the, if the vine doesn't do it, then it doesn't need it. And we want to trust that that plant is, um, is going to, in, in some sense, largely live and die of its own volition. Um, and I think that it's, it's in that ability of an individual plant, uh, in an individual grapevine, to have its own uh, microbiome and microbiological signature, uh, that then it's in individual plants that are then in a vine row or, you know, across the row from each other, that that are planted in a certain area that then it becomes a collection of plants um, so that there is individual character and then there's community character. And so when we, when we think about the, the wine side of this, it really is about capturing community character. Hmm. And we can do that obviously through looking at, you know, uh, larger vineyard sites in total. Uh, we can do it as we see soil profiles change because we know that those things do have an impact um, in terms of like water holding capacity, for instance, um, and you know how that relates to clay content in, in any given soil or how how fractured and friable the ground might be and how quickly those nutrients and resources uh, and water might might move through the ground rather than becoming available to the plant. Um, we can look at that topographically um, and through you know, different elevations and aspects um, within uh, a vineyard so that, you know, even in our six acres of Pinot Gris, I mean, this year uh, we'll end up bottling five different Pinot Gris wines, um, all from within six acres of plants and all for different reasons that are related to both the pieces that we don't see all that life and the impact that that has on the vines. And then obviously the things that we can um, also, uh, walk through the vineyard and touch and taste and smell, um, and and you know that one hillside is going to be different than a little bit of a flat part. The east side is different from the west side, mm-hmm. um, and and things um, if they if they appear to be different, that I, I think in this in this sense, because we're not under any sort of like market driven sensibility for the wines that we eventually bottle for Antiquum Farm that we're really looking for articulating Stephen and Mickey and Jewel and Daisy's home that like we're trying to articulate the farm. We're not in a, in a rush to say, well, this should be this way. It truly is taking what we see, looking at that information, looking at data, um, the creative process, the principles, 
and the work in the cellar is to draw all of that um, all of that into the process, uh, how, how we ferment the decisions we make in the cellar, um, how, like how long we, we do things on skins when we're pressing, do we filter, uh, how we use, you know, SO2, like all of those sort of, uh, cultural line things. Um, they don't come from what shows up in the bottle. They come from where it started, uh, on the farm. Wow. So, can you talk a little bit about that Pinot Gris? I... Well, you know, I, I think if you if you look at sort of the the perspective of Gris historically in wine, um, and if you look at like the actual grape variety itself, it is it is an odd animal mm. because it really does sit pretty much squarely between uh, Pinot Blanc on one end and Pinot Noir on the other mm-hmm. end, and so you you have this grape variety. Um, whose cluster shape and, and growing habit looks, you know, it's obviously part of the Pinot family, um, but is basically half ripened <laughs> in terms of its color. Um, and so with that, that, the, that phenolic and on that side, the pigmentation of it, you, you have color that is basically unstable most of the time. Mm. Um, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall away and get pinkish and, and sort of a color that most people aren't used to in wine because it's, it's in the middle. Um, and then, of course, with that phenolic development being half ripened, you also get tannin. Mm. And often that, that tannin doesn't ripen fully. And so it ends up being kind of bitter, which is not a great flavor profile um, to have in the wine. And of course, if you're looking to other antecedents in Alsace, often Pinot Gris being um, blended with other aromatic grape varieties um, to have like floral pop with Gewürztraminer or muscatted things that, that make it really lovely. And then if you were looking at sort of the, the sea of Pinot Grigio coming out of Northern Italy, um, it's often left with some amount of residual sugar um, to make the fruit pop, but also to mask some of that potential bitterness that comes from it. And and both of those things are great and they serve a purpose and, you know, uh, both in the market and for the flavor profile of those wines and how we engage with wine and they're lovely. Um, what we saw was that Antiquum Farm, particularly for Pinot Gris, it just looked and behaved differently. Um, and instead of going, Oh, we like, this is how Pinot Gris is supposed to be. We went, well, this is the Gris that's in front of us. So what do, what do we do with the Pinot Gris that's in front of us? And the decision is then to embrace it as fully as possible. Um, so within the, you know, the five wines that we'll bottle this year from that are from that six acres of Pinot Gris, there are areas where the skins look one way. And so we, um, use, uh, you know, some amount of a cold soak, uh, in the cellar in order to draw in some of that color and texture. Um, but we don't want to necessarily ferment on those skins. And so we can drain off and press and have a wine that appears to be rosé in color, but is still full and rich and really tastes of, you know, particular part of the vineyard, or we can look at, you know, the far Western side of that Pinot Gris, um, area and, and, um, there it's really slow ripening on the far Western side. Uh, and so when we see the more slow ripening things, and in that sense, less sugar development over time, we get more flavor profile and more skin development. And so we make that there's like six rows, um, that we ferment as we would Pinot Noir and essentially making a fully like red wine uh, process brought into Pinot Gris because that's what that part of the vineyard looks like. Mm. 
Um, and then, and then still we can press, do direct press and make a, a, you know, hopefully a beautiful white wine that comes from the middle two thirds of the vineyard where there is more, um, uh, there's more water availability. The, the canopies are bushier and bigger. And so the assets hold really, really differently as a result of that, because there's more crop there. And so using that as an area to go, okay, this looks more like, like if we were going to make a white wine, this is that area. And so that's the part where we look at white wine production. Wild. You know, the, the Pinot Gris side of it really was taken from what was happening in the Pinot Noir, because there was that sense of like, you know, that Pinot Gris just felt second fiddle. Um, And we looked at, you know, Stephen's farming the entire farm the same. Right. And, and of course, in the Willamette Valley, we're like, you know, marining the gong for Pinot Noir and, um, and driving it home. Um, but it was, it was looking at all of the attention that was being paid to Pinot Gris or to Pinot Noir and going, well, we should pay attention to the Gris the same way. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the lead in within our, our own, you know, little 140 acres of why we started looking differently at Gris. And it came from having, you know, a 14 and a half acre vineyard with, six different selections of Pinot, Pinot Noir planted and seeing that in that area, if we, you know, giving it its full due, both on the farm and in the cellar, there were so many different expressions coming from 14 and a half acres um, that, that it wasn't just a simple, you know, um, pick it, ferment it and go for it. It was, you know, looking at um, the, the ripening cycles and lots of sampling and, um, you know, doing, doing things, qualitatively in the vineyard first uh, in order to make the process and the cellar um, work better, such as, you know, night picking, which is not a normal thing in, in Oregon, mm. certainly not in the Willamette Valley. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I think, I think Antiquum Farm might be the first night picked site. Is that Stephen? Is that uh, I don't think we're the first uh, because I resisted <laughs> for a while. Uh, we're definitely, <laughs> I think we're still by far the only place night picking, uh, you know, in, in the southern end of the valley for sure. But yeah, we were, we were early yeah. adopters. Um, the reason that we began doing it uh, is, is only one of many benefits that we discovered through the process to, to doing it. Um, and so now there, there are a, a myriad of logistical reasons that we, that we continue to do it. Um, is there, I, I would love to hear that. Cause I, I mean, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head would be the temperature. I mm-hmm. imagine you guys have still pretty warm days or can have some pretty warm days yeah. in the fall there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, they're, they're, they end up being pretty relatively mm-hmm. cool. I mean, if, when we're, you know, like a season like uh, 2021 where we're picking earlier than we ever have before, for sure, you definitely can, can get to warmer temperatures. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's also a huge piece of uh, quality control. So when we can, uh, particularly for Pinot Noir, where we're not um, we're not crushing the berries uh, when we're destemming, uh, having cold fruit means that we can get more more whole berry when we destem. Right. Um, so, so there's a real advantage to that, um, and the fruit holds its temperature, you know, in in half ton bins much much better. That like that thermal mass isn't going to change. So if something, you know, if for instance a piece of equipment breaks when we're processing in the morning. Um, we're not risking um, any sort of uh, microbial issues 
simply because the fruit is 40 degrees or 39 degrees, you know, when it hits the deck. Um, but there's also an amazing uh, labor reality to this as well, where, if, you know, if you imagine Oregon, I think the state is uh, by great variety, somewhere between 60 and 70% of the state is planted to one single grape. And that's peanut water. <laughs> so when the dinner, dinner bell rings, <laughs> right. Everybody's Every, picking, everybody's, right? everybody's fighting for the same <laughs> oh, plates, man. forks, napkins, right. wow. you know, trash bins, like yeah. all of it. Um, so if you if you flip that and you go, okay, well, well, what if we just pick at a different time? Um, and then when pickers come work at the farm, they can also then like have a break, uh, grab grab a meal, grab a quick nap, and they can also start picking again when the sun comes up. Mm. Like all of a sudden you have, um, you have a really different labor situation that also directly relates to the quality of the fruit for the winery. Right. Um, and, and then affects like energy use, right? So they like, like, I don't chill down tanks that we put Pinot Noir in, in the winery. Right. Because what's like, there's no need to, like, I don't, uh, the fruit's going to stay cold for a very long time when it hits, you know, when it's in six, uh, you know, anywhere from one ton to six ton increments in a vat, like you can't, you can't heat that up um, without doing it artificially. Uh, And so it's really stable, really, really stable. Um, So there's, there's, there's really fascinating elements um, that, that we, you know, have an opportunity to look at. Uh, that addresses needs that affect, you know, community and culture and wine quality and value systems and, and all of those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, it also becomes really stabilizing for our relationships uh, with picking crews, um, you know, because, because that can be something that, that you know, the other, the other side of that, the dynamic you can enter into is that you just have a new set of faces and new people every, every year. Um, the nice thing about night picking is, uh, you know, it, with a day pick, you, you're starting at sunrise. So that's, you know, that time of year, right about 7 a.m. And then if you're trying to, you know, keep things relatively cool, you're finishing your pick by, you know, 10, 10 30. You know, for us, I was always trying to be saying like, look, we are loading the truck by 10 a.m., which makes right. this incredibly short window you know, and maybe you have people driving right. an hour and an hour, hour and a half to come down here. So to get it done in that time frame, you have to have, you know, three, four times the amount of people that we use for a night pick. So what's right. nice is, you know, it's cooler, it's better conditions for the most part for, for the people doing the work. Um, but they're also making three or four times as much money. So over time, we, we have better relationships with the people who are coming to do the work. Um, they, you know, we become essentially the, the hot ticket item, you know, they want to come pick here. So we get better pickers. And so the work just becomes better and people want to come back here again and again and again. Um, and that's, that's just better for everybody. Um, so it's, that is, that is kind of one of the unexpected things that, that came out of this was, um, the, re- the relationship aspect of it and, and having a predictable crew at, at a really crucial time. Well, labor, I know is a big thing. And you mentioned, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know if you wanted to, if you wanted to use this as a chance to advertise for a, a farmhand 
to uh, <laughs> come help out. But yeah. uh, or a free, you know, just free cult member labor. Anybody interested in <laughs> pitching a tent and worshiping at the uh, Antico? How do you pronounce that? I would love to end on this. Um, how do you pronounce your name, and where, how did you pick that name? Uh, there, there is actually uh, so we, we had a. a, a uh, language. Uh, who was who was the professor Andrew from the U of O? I can't. It was uh, some someone someone who teaches in like ancient. Oh languages. I, yeah, I couldn't remember who the who the particular person was, but we had an ancient languages from yeah. professor from U of O uh, come visit us one time, and and so we finally asked her, and and she told us that there's actually no correct pronunciation because nobody really <laughs> knows. Um, I've always rolled with antiquum. Uh, because I, I just like the way it sounds. I don't like, and, and the one pronunciation that, that she said would not be correct, because I think you're supposed to just like use all the vowels, uh, was, <laughs> was, was antiquum. Um, okay. but, but, I wrong. but I think okay. like antiquum or, or, but I like antiquum cause I just think it sounds cooler. So that's, that's what I roll <laughs> with is antiquum farm. Yeah. So, and it means, it means, it means old ways and, and yeah, uh, got and, it. And just, like in, like and just old stuff. <laughs> old stuff. Old, old, old yeah. shit. It's just old. Aging, yeah. aging people, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Where? How can people, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give your website here because I'm on it. It's antiquumfarm.com. And it's A-N-T-I-Q-U-U-M. That's the tricky announcement, farm.com. Yeah. Yeah, you can um, also also and, find us on Instagram if you want to see all kinds of cool videos of of pigs uh, eating funny things. Um. I, <laughs> yes, adorable, adorable things. Sheep, you know, it's very cuddly and cute and and informative and inspirational. I think uh, your your Instagram that is any any other ways people can come visit and taste. How does that work? Well, it used to work. Uh, a lot better when we have wine. <laughs> uh, so the um, you know, and we maybe some somewhere down the road we can talk more about uh, fire and its effect with. Oh, but we ouch. we we chose not to bottle any wines from the twenty twenty. Uh, heartbreak. Uh, so we are we are yeah we are currently out. Uh, do not actually even have any wine anywhere in our possession all right so this is january 22 when do you think yep. you'll when will you when will the yes. next wines be available it, uh, it'll it'll start back up in june, june so okay. we've got a you know um a five five month five and a half month hiatus uh at this point and um but we're always looking for ways for people to come and engage and, and it, you know i think the question we might not have really answered is that you know um while wine is what keeps the farm uh, economically thriving and moving, um, it's it's a carrot truly to extend to people to come and um, take some time away from where they are to to explore. You know, a small American farm, uh, a family who's put their heart and their you know blood, sweat, and tears um, into this thing, and that um, it's the draw for us. And of course, you know, then as people when they can, you know, purchase wine and take that home, um, back to wherever they are, um, locally or, or regionally or, or nationally, hopefully internationally, yeah. um, 
that, that they that they take the values with them and the perspective and the questions um, and the curiosity uh, and get to explore that as well. So um, we, we look forward to having people back uh, at the farm and uh, folks can always contact us and be like, I'm in the area. Like, can I come pet a pig and we can try to make it work? Well, just be careful of using all this extra time that you won't be selling wine to start any big projects uh, that will force you to be have <laughs> added more to your plate in future years when you will be selling wine. Um, <laughs> that is, that's, a, that's a good caution. We appreciate that. I've, I've fallen victim myself to that many times. Um, but that's a really beautiful note to end on your what you just said so thank you for that both of you thank you so much it's really great to hear what you're doing and i mean i really want to come and experience it i think it's been really informational for anybody and i know there are people out there who i hope are thinking about this so i think it's you, you know you've been just a, a wealth of incredible information for the realities of making this happen thank you so much hey thank you it was great hanging out with you and and really appreciate the time it's Great to, great to get to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Adam. We look forward to seeing you in the fall. Definitely. Thanks. Yeah.